Update Fan Drive Time Sportsnet 590 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Uh, what's going on here? Blue Jays in the American League East, and specifically the Blue Jays and the Baltimore Orioles, but I guess more specifically the Blue Jays and the Baltimore Orioles and the Boston Red Sox. It's It's stupid. And I get, like, a large part of it is the Orioles are good. No doubt. Orioles, real good. Really good. Coming into their own. Young team, lots of firepower. Um, but you don't go one in seven against a team, seven and 22 against a division without like some level of just like, what the hell is going on here? Oh, for seven with runners in scoring position with the Blue Jays yesterday. Oh, for 17 with runners in scoring position in the entire series through two games so far in game three tonight, Grayson Rodriguez against Yusei Kikuchi. Here's, here's what I'm talking about. Again, all credit in the world to the Baltimore Orioles. They're good. Nobody's saying they're not good. Clearly good. Ryan Mountcastle is good. But Ryan Mountcastle in his career has an OPS of 770. This year, he's actually performed worse than his career averages. 752 OPS throughout the course of his career. Against the Blue Jays, he has an OPS of 1,021. <laughs> he was three for four with a walk, single, a couple of doubles, and uh, two RBIs yesterday. So that's, that's, for those counting at home, that's the second best OPS against the Blue Jays in Major League Baseball, minimum 120 plate appearances. The best is Mike Trout. So Ryan Mountcastle turns into Mike Trout when the Orioles play the Blue Jays. And when that happens this season, it ends up in, a, in an Orioles victory. Uh, many people are calling this the Caleb Joseph Bowl. A couple of teams he, he used to play for, the Blue Jays and the Orioles. Uh, the Blue Jays Central Analyst joins us on the line right now. A lot of people are saying that, Caleb. <laughs> you, you, and you, and more of you. Yeah, that's it. It's just me, really. Uh, <laughs> but it, but it is, you do have in, keen insights into, into both teams and baseball in an overall sense. So what I just said there, like, okay, I get it. The Orioles are having a moment right now, and, and there's guys that appear destined to have great, great careers, Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rutschman, uh, at the forefront. But are they this much better than the Blue Jays? What's going on here? No, they're a very good team. And I said it on radio yesterday during the broadcast. This, this team reminds me of the Baltimore Orioles. They remind me of the 2014 2015 Kansas City Royals, a team that when I was on the Baltimore Orioles, they beat us and went to the World Series. They lost to the Giants, and then um, they won the World Series the next year. And I just, it's a very similar type of feel in that they have just enough starting pitching to kind of get them to the sixth or seventh inning where they can hand it over to their bullpen, their record. when leading after six innings is like 45 and five, it's just unbelievable. And they have just enough bats in the lineup. that can thump one out. They can run the base as well. They advance on dirt balls. They play their game. They wait for the other team to beat themselves and they've got enough firepower to hold a, a three or four run lead. They're really good in one run games. They've played in tight games. They're a confident group. It, it, there's so many similarities to that team with the Kansas City Royals and this team that I can't even, I can't, I can't really state it any more clearly other than they're good and they're mm-hmm. very easy to overlook. They're very easy to think. We go in there, we play our game, we smoke these guys. And if the Blue Jays do, if they go play their game, 
I do believe they win two out of three. They're just not playing their game. And the key to their game right now, and it has been all season, is getting the big hit, like you just said. Runners in scoring position has been an issue yesterday, the day before, and the other 100-something games before that. (laughs) Yeah, it's infuriating, Caleb, and we keep waiting for it to, like, come around and, hey, there's still two months to go uh, during the regular season. Maybe it will, but but John Schneider, I mean, we, we saw him start to take action coming back after the road trip where he, he knocked George Springer out of the leadoff spot and Whit Merrifield up top there, and, and that's looked pretty good. Whit Merrifield's looked real good as the, the leadoff hitter for this Blue Jays team, but still... The, the the big hit has has eluded this team for for the most part. I, I'm like of the mind that, you know, maybe it's not the easiest thing in the in the world to do as far as you know you got to add a guy like Davis Schneider to your 40 man roster, which means you got to DFA somebody off of the 40 man roster. But like I'm of the mind that why don't you like roll the dice on on one of those minor leaguers that's having a great year at, at AAA? Even a guy who's what I think he's a 25th round pick and he's like five foot nothing. But he's had a great minor league career. He's, like, worked for everything he's gotten. And now he's having a great year in Buffalo with the Bisons. Where are you on – because, the, the obviously, the trade deadline's passed. There's, there's no trade coming to augment this offense, which, boy, it really felt like they could have used somebody that could play a little left field maybe or second base. And I know Paul DeYoung has some pop uh-huh. in, in that bat. But where are you on, like, maybe just a, a shock to the system of, of a guy in, in AAA who's having a great year and, and – throwing him into the middle of a, a Blue Jays lineup that's scuffling right now. Boy, I, I always love bringing in those kind of feel-good stories. I was kind of a feel-good story as a player. and You feel like when you come up, you, you kinda, you've got something to prove. You, you've been doing something in the minor leagues for a long time that's been working. You want to see if it translates. You've got a good approach. You've got a good sound, keen uh, awareness of the, of the strike zone. You want to see if that kind of stuff translates, and you hope that it's kind of a bit of a shot in the arm to the club. Um, I, I love it. I just wonder, like, where where's the spot roster-wise on the 26-man where you could do that? Um, I Look, when Ernie Clement has come up, he's produced. He's yeah. hitting, like, 500. Now, yeah, it's, like, not very many ABs. <laughs> no. But he got a huge hit, a huge hit in Miami. That's true. Right? And he, he got another big hit last night. Well, not big hit. He just he got a he got a hit last night. And okay, let's see him runners in. So, I mean, you know, it's 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 you don't really want to panic, but at the same time, it's like, is Ernie Clement going to get you to the World Series? But like, maybe I, 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 <laughs> I dare say so. no. But yeah. like, I probably wouldn't bet on it. But like, the, the the key point, and I think this is what you're really trying to make, Ben, is that if the Blue Jays regulars perform to their to the back of their baseball card and to their kind of normal projections, the Blue Jays are okay. You're talking about if George Springer can drive run-ins. Now the question mark around Boba Shed, that's big. That's big because he is a run producer. I actually love what Danny Jansen's doing. You watch Danny Jansen, he, he produces runs. And I think it's the hardest thing to do in the big leagues and one of the biggest atrocities in all of baseball was demeaning the value of the run batted in because I feel like it's so tough to do. Everybody wants to get obsessed with the OPS, which is all slug, which is all homers and doubles. But by my count, last time I checked, the game is won and lost by runs scored Mm -hmm. and runs prevented. So if you can drive guys in and that could, that could be something as, as easy as shorting, shortening up, taking what's given to you, eliminating a certain part of the plate for me with the blue Jays, 
It's about you know, you, you're going to say, oh, not this, not this approach thing again. But when you get runners in scoring position, you've got to get really, really, really good at eliminating certain pitches or certain zones and getting really hyper-focused on your approach. Because remember, when there's runners in scoring position, that is where the pitcher is making his money by not allowing you to score. So you're getting his absolute best. To think that you can just go up there and see ball and hit ball is not going to be good enough. So it's the, the ultimate one-on-one battle when you have a guy in scoring position that you've got to get in. You've got to have hyper-focus. And I'm just seeing a lot of guys that are trying very hard, and that's great. They're trying as hard as they can. But you've got to narrow down that focus, be really disciplined until you get your pitch, and then you've got to execute. No, I'm I'm with you. I'm not one of those people that that says don't talk about approach anymore. Like it does. Like approach is the biggest deal. It, it feels like with this team, whether it's Vladdy or or I guess Springer as well. And it, I think it's the biggest indication or biggest uh, biggest reason why there's a huge discrepancy between the Blue Jays and the Orioles when it comes to scoring runners from third base with less than two outs. The Orioles had have had to this point in the season 215 opportunities to score a runner from third base with less than two outs. And they've scored them 120 times, which is like, wow, it's above league That's average. Really good. Yeah. Blue Jays yeah. have had almost the exact same number of opportunities, 213. Again, the Orioles had 215 and the, the Orioles scored 120 of 215. Blue Jays have scored the runner fewer than 100 times, 99 times. That's that's 21 runs separating these two teams, not just from like Adley Rutschman hitting home runs and having a great offensive season or Gunner Gunner Henderson coming up with a, a big home run off right. a lefty. That's like anybody can do. That's like Santiago Espinal can, can do that by hitting a ground ball to the, the right side of the infield. I, great point. And, and it's, it's been happening all season long, Caleb, and you can point to the runners in scoring position. I don't know. Maybe they're correlated. That feels like approach to me, doesn't it? Doesn't that feel like not having a team-based approach when you're at the plate? Yeah, it's the ability to shorten up and take what's given to you. And in an era, and this is what's so, um, for me, it's so damaging to really focus on the homers and the slug is because when guys are paid that way and they're chasing homers and chasing slug, they have a really hard time knowing when it's time to shorten up and go for good hard contact. And that's a big deal. I remember going through rounds of batting practice where you literally practice like shortening up. That that does not happen anymore. It's mm-hmm. a free-for-all Homer City every single time you step into that cage. It's it's a free-for-all. See how far you can hit it every single time. Why? Because that's how guys are paid. And until they start paying guys for runs batted in, they're not going to have that skill of being able to shorten up, to be able to, you know, it, it, what I mean by shortening up is, you see that big swing where the guy's off balance. He's trying to hit it 500 feet. There was a play, not I think it was maybe two days ago, maybe even three days ago, there was a hit and run with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Bo Bichette at first base. And Vladdy had a, a changeup outside. I think it was against um, Anderson from mm. the Angels. And it was about four or five inches outside. He kind of took this really easy um, half swing and hit just a nice easy line drive single right over the second baseman said, and that's what I mean by shortening up is, is not trying to do too much. And I had a hitting coach one time tell me this game is all about asking for very little. When you ask for very little in this game, you actually end up getting a lot. And I totally understand what that feels like when I'm standing on 17 T and it's a yeah. par five and I'm downwind 
and I'm 520 out, and I know if I can bust it 320, I might have a five iron in. And I try and ramp up and hit it 320, and I come the path outside the end, and I cut across it and swipe it, Whoops. and now it's moving right to left, and now it's in the crap. When, hey, all I got to do is just center this ball up because all the factors are in place. Just center it up and see what happens. Take a nice, good, normal, easy swing, center it up. And normally when you center it up, you have less moving parts. You're in tight, you're connected, and you hit it even further Mm -hmm. than you expected to hit it. That's what I mean by asking for very little, and you get a lot in this game. When you ask for a lot, you get very little. It's the opposite. So it's all about approach. And like I've I've said this before. I don't, I don't think the big leagues should have actual hitting coaches. I think they should have approach coaches at this point in these guys' careers. They know their swing. Are there going to be mechanical adjustments? Absolutely. Very minute, very small mechanical adjustments. But the main thing these guys should be honing in on is what was your approach? Did you have it? Did you execute it? If the answer is no to any of that, you don't even look at the mechanics. You go right back to approach. You start there. Once you can say yes to all of those things, then you start looking at mechanics. Yeah, I, I I don't know where to start with George Springer, but it's probably a combination of the, of the two. And he's been a, an aggressive hitter throughout the course of his major league career, right? So, like, he's been pretty successful. <laughs> I mean, he's a World Series right. MVP, so it, it's hard to mess too much with success there. But, like, he's on the verge with, with one more AB here of tying the franchise record for most uh, hitless at-bats. He's currently sitting on an 0 for 34, which is, that's that's a lot. Um, what are you right. seeing from, from George? Who's man, you do look at like some of the, the exit velocity stuff. It, it doesn't look like he's, he's totally regressed, but what, what are you seeing when George Springer steps to the plate right now? Yeah. Great question. Uh, George is, George is a free swinger when it's inside his approach and what he's looking for. And that approach for me, when I caught behind him, it was ever changing. Sometimes he's looking inside. Sometimes he's looking soft and it can kind of change from pitch to pitch. And that's great. You just, if you're going to, if, and when you have that approach, you've got to be able to take pitches that aren't inside of that. And for the most part, he's done that. Uh, he's been able to take some good pitches. I, I look back at the, the last game versus the angels and he had four really, really nice ABs. He centered up three balls that in my opinion were, were really good ABs direction was good. And he swung at good pitches good swing decisions when you're in this type of a rut and trust me I know exactly what it feels like I spent half of my career in these type of ruts you've got to find a way to have one little small attainable goal Mm -hmm. that you can control not a pitcher not a result you can't be result oriented you have to know what you're looking for in that a b if it's get started on time if it's something mechanical something you can control if you can have these little successes and these little building blocks that allow you to get ball to bear the barrel to the ball allow you to swing at a good pitch then you don't be result oriented and you're not attached emotionally to the result then before you know it you've centered up four or five more balls and then at that point it starts to really go downhill for you and before you know it you're in a 12 game hitting streak i do think that he's been hosed a little bit a few times on some calls you know, and, and that's just how it goes. When it rains, it pours yeah. is the old saying. And it's true. So what does he have to do? He just got to continue to find these little successes. And if it's look for a hang and breaking ball, great. Hammer that hang and breaking ball. But if it's a sinker inside, you've got to lay off because you're looking for hard contact. That's all you're looking for. You hit it hard. You're in good shape. If it is caught, no problem. You hit the ball hard three or four times a night. Mm-hmm. I promise you 
he's going to like the result because this guy's got a really good track record. He's got power. He's got all the things. If he hits the ball hard, he'll be in good shape. Yep, uh, and maybe we'll see it tonight. It's been a while, though. It's crazy what's happened to, to George Springer in in recent days. Caleb, uh, thanks so much as always, pal. Enjoy the, the Caleb Joseph Bowl. No, you got it. Good talking to you, Ben. All right, likewise, buddy. Uh, there's Caleb Joseph, former Blue Jays catcher, analyst on Blue Jays Central. So, yeah, yesterday was the Major League Baseball trade deadline. Hope you enjoyed our extended one-to-four uh, edition of the Fan Drive Time on MLB trade deadline day. And uh, there are no more transactions to come. But I, I, I think a, a lot of people really paid attention to our next guest's tweet yesterday, reminiscing uh, about uh, a trade deadline in 2012. Travis Snyder, former Blue Jays outfielder. You can uh, follow him on Twitter, or X, I guess, at LunchboxHero45, joins us online right now. How's it going, Travis? I'm going. I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing doing very well. But but like I said, I, I was uh, going through Twitter and man, the number of tweets I, I I looked at yesterday during deadline day was enormous. But yeah, yours definitely stood out. And and I think just about every Blue Jays fan remembers that day when you were traded to the Pirates uh, for Brad Lincoln in Seattle. Um, and and people, I would uh, I would advise everybody to go check out your your Twitter account at Lunchbox Hero Forty Five. But yeah, what. What do you remember from from that deadline, um, leaving the only organization you ever knew in 2012? Yeah, as I expressed in the tweet, there was just a a lot of emotion, uh, a lot of history, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears poured into my career and what I felt was a strong opportunity for me to be a part of that franchise long term. And the way the business works, if you don't perform, changes have to be made. And as a young kid, that was a difficult pill for me to swallow uh, going up and down during my career. Um, but uh, when that time comes, when you actually get traded, as I said, you know, you got teammates, all the guys that I grinded through spring trainings, minor leagues, trainers, coaches that help support me on and off the field on that journey. Uh, it, I think those are some of the things that go overlooked. Uh, and, and this isn't, you know, feel sorry for every professional athlete that gets traded, but just, just to provide a different perspective on what's kind of going on behind the scenes and, and how, crazy it was that it happened in my home city it was actually my sister's birthday uh and we had to go to dinner afterwards and it was probably the most awkward dinner i've ever been a part of yeah that's brutal man um yeah that and you were having it albeit like a very brief uh season you were having with the blue jays in in 2012 but you were having a nice little you know 40 plate appearance uh, stretch where you were opsing 856 had it ever really truly entered your mind and I know I know there was like a spring training I guess it was 2011 where it was like you and Eric Thames were kind of in a in a battle to 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 be the the everyday left fielder I want to say but yeah did, did you did it ever truly like enter your mind before it happened that you might be traded out of Toronto yeah but I think once the game starts that kind of stuff isn't on the front of your mind uh it's something I knew leading up to it I started following MLB trade rumors earlier in my career so uh, had an idea that there were things that could potentially happen. And, you know, it just the way it all happened, where it happened, the timing of it, middle of the game, all unusual circumstances, I feel like, for me and my journey. Um, but, again, it just kind of is par for the course and how things ended up going. Yeah, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, um, and and the media landscape is a little different more than a decade after that fact. But, yeah, you've, you've also illustrated in a, a number of tweets how, how much you were paying attention to the media coverage of your career to that point. Like, would you would you advise guys who are playing right now who are, you know, maybe even high draft picks to, to like, not read anything, don't pay attention to, to what's being said about you, try to ignore the hype? 
Yeah, I think it's a it's a fine line. Um, as humans, we have you know this ego that's always there, regardless of what you do for for work and for a living. And and the more you pump that up, uh, the easier it is to create that false sense false sense of security, uh, that superhuman, that super athlete type of uh, mindset. Where I think again, to be successful and be great at something, you have to have confidence. You have to, you know, really work hard to perfect your craft. But it's the more external you allow into the internal, you lose track of yourself, right? And I feel like that's having reflected on a 16-year career now and, and going through years of therapy and, and trying to just make sense of, you know, all my anger and frustrations. Uh, I realized how much I had let in and how many people I was trying to please throughout that process instead of staying focused on what I knew I needed to be true to being a good human being, being a good teammate, working my tail off and showing up every day ready to play uh, and not being consumed by what everybody else is saying around you. Dude, and that advice seems universal, right? Like not just professional baseball players, but like so many people. Listen, I'll put my hand up as well. At times become um, just a victim of, of feeling like your self-worth is so tied to to your profession, what you do for a living. And I mean, for, for a professional baseball player as well, where the, there's so much attention on you and, and you become such a special member of society when you, when you become that, I imagine that was super difficult to, to, to try and separate yourself from just baseball player to Travis Snyder, a human being. 100%. I think you hit it on the head, and <clears throat> I've tried to show that in some of my replies to tweets, and, and I sent out a tweet this morning that was just more human-based. I think this is, this is an internal struggle we all deal with, uh, the identity who we are, what our purpose is, what we do for a living, how much money we make. There's there's so many standards at which we want to compare ourselves to other people. We want to define success and achievements, uh, and, and everybody has their own version of that. And I think where I have been able to reflect and see back uh, on the times in which I started to, you know, I use the term moral compass, and that, that compass started to get pushed towards things that I knew deep down inside of me weren't the most important things and weren't going to dictate my happiness and, and the health of my relationships around me. But again, when you get so consumed in your identity as what you do for a living and the success, which I had a ton of early in my career, especially through my amateur and early, you know, early 20s, you, you kind of have this developing brain, right, where you see it with athletes all the time, um, where, where they do things that you wouldn't think a normal human being would do uh, for, for better or for worse. And I think that's just something that we get put up on that pedestal as professional athletes there's entertainers there's musicians people in the media right that are on tv and on the radio all the time you get recognized people people know you as the guy on the radio right and the voice of the jays or, or the sports radio talk and those are the things that i think all of us are trying to balance right whether you are in the spotlight or you're not it's just we are put up on that pedestal and giving given a platform uh that's easier to 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 fail and have everybody see what's going on. So, yeah, a professional baseball player at any level, yeah, is going to get that to some degree. But I'm curious. You were a first-round pick, and then, you know, in your, your first foray into the major leagues, you you you, you looked the, the part, and Blue Jays fans super excited uh, about you. And then, yeah, it, it's, it can be shocking when things don't go 100% well. There's, there's a guy in the Blue Jays system right now, Davis Schneider, who's a 25th-round pick. And he's had to fight for everything he's been given and, and found his way all the way to AAA this season. And he's continuing to hit. And there's a lot of Blue Jays fans that are curious about him. Like, I, I'm sure you played with a lot of guys who were not first-round picks, Travis. Do you imagine there's, like, a freedom in that? That, yeah, okay, you're a professional baseball player, and, and but nobody has the expectations of you even making the major leagues. 
I can, can you can you imagine the difference in mentality that would take for a, a player who was not guaranteed a spot in the major leagues at any point in their career? Yeah, I think people in that position have their back against the wall, but that doesn't mean it's any easier. And I think there's less guarantee, there's less opportunities, right? As a first-round pick, I was given more opportunities than the average person or even the top 10% of my draft class would ever get because of the money they invested in me and how highly they, they viewed me as a player and as a person. But for guys in that position, there still is that balance, right? And some guys are better at handling that than others. And I think as people like, you said David Schneider is his name? Yeah, Davis. As they... Yeah, Davis, as they achieve more, right, this word achievement, uh, as they get to these upper levels, it's always interesting for me to watch how those guys handle this new success, right? Because if there isn't the expectation and then all of a sudden you have that success, then, you know, on the flip side, you can create that imposter syndrome, which I went through a lot of my career and have had to unpack. um, Am I really that good? And and you lose that self-confidence and that just absolute internal dog that says, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I know what I need to take care of each and every day. And I think the guys that are able to keep their head down and stay focused on that process over the results and understand that long-term the results are going to come as long as you're compounding that effort that you're putting into it. Have you translated that to the golf course now, Travis? Boy, I tell you, that is a, that's my new demon, uh, my new swing that I get to grind over all the time. And it's funny because I'm a 15 handicap, so by no means am I a great golfer. And I play with a lot of scratch and, and low single-digit guys, and I'm watching them, and I'm like, well, I struggle with the idea, you know, the ideology that I'm a professional athlete. Now, my excuse is I golf right-handed, and you know, I swung the bat left-handed, so there's a little bit going on there that's just unnatural. But yeah. I've also really enjoyed the, the process of golf. I've learned a ton over the last couple of years. Uh, I was golfing yesterday after I sent out that tweet and just kind of watching things evolve and the responses I was getting. And again, it's it's so easy to get down on yourself after a bad shot and place these expectations like you're going to go out there and shoot 78. And it's like, man, if you could just take it one shot at a time, just like I heard Caleb Joseph talking about it on the, on the last find the wins in every situation, yeah. understand what you need to get better at and simplify that process instead of making it such an emotional attachment to your handicap or, or being the best golfer in your group. That's it's so damn true. <laughs> and again, uh, people should follow Travis on on Twitter or X, uh, whatever you want to call it, at Lunchbox Hero Forty Five. Travis, uh, this was great. Thanks so much for doing this. You bet. Anytime. Uh, There's Travis Snyder, former Blue Jays outfielder, uh, retired now. Got three kids living in the Pacific Northwest, and boy, who doesn't remember that moment where Brad Lincoln was the return in trade. Travis Snyder, former first-round pick, a guy that everybody was paying attention to when he was killing it in the minor leagues, finally arrived and looked the part in brief moments when he got his first kick of the can at the major league level. And, yeah, had some moments beyond that, but it, it wasn't quite the the story we all expected and certainly Travis expected and uh, reminiscing about his trade on trade deadline day yesterday. We appreciate the time. When we come back, Blue Jays didn't do all that much at the deadline. They did get Paul DeYoung, a injury replacement for Bo Bichette, who's going to help them certainly defensively, and there's a little bit of pop in the bat. But I think most people were underwhelmed with the inability to go get another big-time right-handed power bat. But you look around the American League East and what everybody else did, including the Baltimore Orioles, they got Jack Flaherty. It's fine. Not the former Cy Young Award candidate anymore. He's a guy with an ERA in the mid-fours and a whip of one and a half but he helps the Orioles, but that's it. 
Like Orioles fans are disappointed. Nobody more disappointed than Yankees fans, though, let me tell you. Uh, we'll talk to Adnan Verk of MLB Network and the Cinephile Podcast next as the Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Blue Jays and Orioles playing yet again. Blue Jays have yet to forfeit. It's just an inevitability, though, that they will lose yet again to the Baltimore Orioles. How'd they get that win? How did they, anyone remember? It was game two of that last series between Blue Jays and Orioles in Baltimore. Blue Jays actually had a chance to win that series and then, of course, lost the rubber match. That's the one win. It's eight games now. Blue Jays one and seven against the Orioles. Much better than their 0 and 6 against the Boston Red Sox, who they have next, by the way. Uh, Yusei Kikuchi trying to stem the tide tonight against Grayson Rodriguez. So, yeah, bad news. Blue Jays stink against the Orioles and Red Sox and, by and large, the American League East. And they didn't add the big right-handed bat that might have played left field. Maybe he still plays for the Seattle Mariners, who really felt like was going to land in their lap. Um, but here's the good news. Nobody else did anything of real significance outside of the Angels and the Astros, who, you know, that could be impactful, the Blue Jays' playoff chances. but. Yankees didn't do anything, added a middle reliever. Red Sox didn't do anything. Orioles added a starter in Jack Flaherty, but he's not winning a Cy Young this year. So that's maybe the the positive spin on things. Let's talk to our pal Adnan Verk of MLB Network and the Cinephile Podcast. How's it going, man? I'm good, Ben. I uh, Mike Gentile, our producer, tells us a lot of hand-wringing right now in Toronto. People have said they didn't do more moves. I'm with you on Teoscar. I felt like that was going to happen. It didn't, but overall, I thought the Jays did what they could, and we'll get into it, obviously, but with DeYoung and Hicks, both those pickups I thought were smart. Yeah, for sure, and and Bobichet hasn't even been put on the IL, so it, it doesn't seem like it's a longer-term thing, and, and John Schneider yesterday said no significant structural damage to the knee, so so that's that's all well and good, and, and DeYoung can play defense at a, at a high level at, at shortstop. It does feel, though, like they're a bat short, Adnan. I know the, the back end of the bullpen, and despite the fact Jordan Hicks' debut yesterday didn't go so well, it was in non-leverage, and he hadn't worked in like two weeks, so I give him a pass on that, and he did. He threw the hardest pitch in the history of the Toronto Blue Jays yesterday, so good, so good for him. Um, but yeah, uh, evaluate now post-deadline, now that all the moves are made, these are the rosters, like... How do you view, view the Blue Jays in relation to, well, the team they're, they're playing yet again tonight, the, the Orioles, who are at the top of the division? So Dan O'Dowd, former Rockies GM, said to me the other day, because I think the Jays have the best rotation in the division. I said, really? He said, yeah. And he goes, the, the Rays are top-heavy. He goes, like, McClanahan, Glassdown, Eflin. I go, well, that's what I thought you were going to say. He said, but four and five, there's issues now, because Springs is out, Rasmussen is out. He said, for the Jays, Gossman's top-ten pitch in the league. I said, yeah, because Burrios is back, sub-three-and-a-half ERA. Kikuchi's sub-four ERA. Bassett had six straight starts, three earned runs or fewer. And then you're getting Manoa, who's been good out of three starts. Two have been good. And then you're getting uh, Ryu as well. He's like, to me, how is that not the best rotation in the division? It's all right. So that, that sounds optimistic. That sounds encouraging. He said, yeah. Then we get to the bad news, and it's exactly what you said, which is the bats. I mean, I, I can't believe we haven't talked more about Maybe people have said it more in Toronto. You've done it on the show. But we certainly haven't heard MLB Network. And I said the other day, listen, I really like the guy personally. 
and he's a winner and a champion, all the rest of it. But George Springer is hitless in his last 34 at-bats. That's the longest active drought across Major League Baseball. Like, if you'd asked me a week ago, what's the problem with the Jays, I would have said Alejandro Kirk has to hit better and Dalton Varsho. But I had no idea Springer was like that bad. Like, he's got a, a sub-700 OPS. That's stunning to me for a guy been getting $150 million. And, again, I like George a lot. I think he was a good signing. They outbid the Mets by $30 million to get him. But – so many concerns about his health. You're going to move him to right field out of center field so Kiermaier becomes the guy. And now offensively he can't hit. Like, man, Springer's really going to pick things up for this team. I, I, I don't want to say as he goes, the season goes. But it's surprising to me how much he struggled. And that's why, to your point, a right-handed outfield bat would be nice because Springer doesn't hit. And Varsho, as spectacular he is defensively, and you can throw all the defensive runs saved in the world at me. I think his OPS plus is like 83. Like, dude, you've got to hit some more. So I – I'm with you. I look at the Jays overall when it's all said and done. I like their starting staff because they've got a six-man rotation right now. Even if one falls off, no big deal. And bullpen, I'm with you. Hicks helps. As Dan Pleaser gets said to me, they need a guy to get the ball to Swanson and Romano. And now with Romano being hurt, Hicks can be the guy. But offensively, especially when you're going toe-to-toe with the O's, like, dude, this intradivisional record every time makes me sick to my stomach. I go, the Jays, the fact that they're, they've lost 22 of 29 games against ALE's foes, the second worst intradivision record in baseball behind the A's. Like, how the heck can you call yourself a playoff team? You're 25 games above 500 against everybody else, and the division, you stink. It's tough to overcome that, man. No, it is. And, yeah, you, to the Springer point, he is, he's one hitless at bat away from tying the franchise mark of 0 for 35 uh that nobody's done 0 for 36 but it's it's been unbelievable and he's been banged out of the out of the leadoff spot he, he's been hitting fifth at times when this uh lineup's been healthy with Bo Bichette. without Bo Bichette, he's he's hitting cleanup for this team it's you know what it, it, we can laugh at teams like the Yankees and and Brian Cashman talking about hey the best way for us to improve is internally and and the guys who are supposed to hit continuing to hit and it's not like there's some big bat that did move. Shohei Otani did not move, right? Like the the, right. the Angels held on to him. Um, the, the Barry Bonds not was not available in trade. And even Teoscar <laughs> Hernandez, he didn't move either. And Tyler O'Neill, they were like, okay, so Tommy Pham is the guy I think a lot of Blue Jays point, uh, fans are pointing to and saying, well, how come you couldn't go out and get Tommy Pham? I'm, I'm telling you, Tommy Pham's not like the difference between this team winning a World Series and not, I don't think. What is, though is what you talked about. George Springer looking more like George Springer. And, you know, also Vladimir Guerrero Jr. looking closer to the 2021 version of himself. Like, it feels like loser talk to talk about internal improvements and not going out and addressing needs. But, like, yeah, when George Springer is unplayably bad offensively, there's no solution to that. No, 100%. You're right about Vladdy. I mean, it continues to be the theme of the season. Like, when Bo went down, you go, he's the Jays' MVP. It really is. Like, don't get seduced by Vlad Jr. and his famous father and the you know outrageous season he had a couple of years ago. Like, no, no, like overall, Bichette's the guy. He's like steadier and, and certainly you feel like he's the catalyst so often for this Jays team. And so you take a deep breath when you see right knee discomfort. And as you said, hopefully it's not that bad for Bone. He's going to be fine. But Vladdy's got to go from good to great. Like Springer's got to go from below average to above average. Uh, Varsho has to go from below average to above average. Like, if all those guys make, like, I don't, want, I don't want to say incremental improvements, but sizable improvements, you'd see a much better team. Like, if you look at the New York Mets, I was looking at their numbers, and you go, it's really simple what happened. Lindor's OPS down 20%, 20 points, excuse me. Alonzo's OPS down like 100 points. His batting average is terrible. Marte, terrible. And, like, it's pretty obvious. Like, four of their key offensive players had bad seasons. They couldn't score enough runs. But period. 
And so similarly with the Jays, if you go literally line by line, player by player, like I thought maybe catching was more of an issue, but I remember I see Danny Jansen, I go, this guy's got some pop. I think we got yeah. 103 OPS plus. He had some home runs. Kirk, definitely down. But again, I, I think you could look at that and go, well, were you expecting Alejandro Kirk to be Mike Piazza? I'm like, no, but I did think a year ago, you know, we're talking, man, look at, look at the excess of offensive talent as catcher, which is why they could trade Moreno, who, by the way, hasn't hit a ton with the D-backs, but he's great defensively, but you get back Vars, who doesn't hit. So, like, eventually, these things do have to add up. And even one of these things, Ben, I think would be important. If Vlad goes, like, on a crazy streak, you go, okay, Vlad can carry this team for a little bit. If George can go from below average to average, then it would help things out. But I'm with you, and I agree with you on the Yankees comparison, because with New York, again, the Yankee fans here are frustrated. They didn't do anything. I'm like, but, dude, you guys are underachievers. You clearly should be better than what you are. You want, who do you want to save the team? LeMahieu's got a sub-700 OPS. Stan's hitting under the Mendoza line. Hits into a key double play last night. Like they, they got, Rizzo's a mess, and I love Anthony Rizzo. He's got zero power on that bat anymore. He can't even work walks. Like All they have, they're top-heavy. It's Cole and Judge. And so for the Jays, I just think it's fasting. The last two months of the season, the pitching is not a concern. It's the offense. The bats have to produce on a consistent basis, period. Yep. Um, so, yeah, let's make Blue Jays fans feel a little better, talk a little bit more about the Yankees. Uh, and, and John Carlos Stanton, <laughs> who's making uh, George Springer's $22 million bucks that he's owed uh, for the next couple of years uh, look like nothing because he's getting 32 this year. He's getting 32 next year. He's getting 32 in 2025. He's getting 29 in 2026. He's getting 25 in 2027 and, and 25 again in 2028. And this was a guy that was the best slugger in all of baseball, hit 59 home runs in his final season for the Marlins. And even with the Yankees in his first year, hit 38. Holy cow, has he just, he's been unplayably bad. And when he's, I mean, when he's not playing poorly, he's injured, which is like all the time. Um, It's like, what is the state of baseball in in New York right now when you talk about the Mets and their $400 million payroll and and Steve Cohen paying millions of dollars to to get prospect returns for Max Scherzer and, and Justin Verlander? That was supposed to be, like, this was going to be one of the most exciting years in the history of New York professional baseball where we're going to have the Subway Series again, those two teams. And they've both been, I mean, the, the, the Mets are looking, making the Yankees look like the tw- uh, 1927 uh, Yankees, but... What is the state of baseball in New York City right now? Well, it's a high degree of consternation and rage. And specifically for the Mets, the issue is the Verlander trade. The other stuff you can kind of get. You go, all right, fam, can I find? Not going anywhere. Get what you can while you can. But with regards to Verlander, everybody was mad. Because Scherzer, you say, okay, strikeout numbers down a little bit, walk rate up a little bit, ERA north of four. ERA plus of 103. So he's a slightly above average pitcher. I still think Scherzer's a good pitcher. But he's probably no longer an ace. I don't know if he's your game one starter anymore. Perhaps. Perhaps he can get a little giddy up now that he's with the Texas Rangers. But he probably is what he is. But Verlander, you go, hang on a second. His first nine starts ERA, again, four and a half. But his last eight starts sub two ERA. Looks fantastic. Yep. Slider never better. You go, all right. So Verlander's just the guy. And he's still under contract for next season. And if he pitches 140 innings next year, you got him the year after that. Now, I get the fact he's 40, but if he's pitching this well and you clearly think your team is in contention with Steve Cohen, then you can be the team next year that can go for it, and Berliner's still your ace. And then you trade him and eat some salary for a couple of prospects? Like, that one's just a head-scratcher to me. I, I can't get it. And then what happens is Scherzer feels yeah. like he's spilling secrets from the Pentagon saying that he was told that <laughs> the Mets aren't going to continue to to build next year. It's a transition year. And they're really not going to go for it until 2025. I was like, wow. Like, I... 
I, I, mean, I was stunned by his honesty, but I can't imagine how furious Steve Cohen is by those comments being made public. And I would think whatever information they have on Matt Scherzer, they're like, all right, we're going to leak something on this guy now, man. You're going to tell details what we were saying. Like, come on, we'll come back at you. Because imagine you're a Mets season ticket holder, Ben. You go, wait, you're not even trying to win next year? I'm not renewing my ticket. Just screw that. You guys are just going to mail it in until 2025 or 2026. We'll forget it. So I was pretty shocked at Scherzer's candor while being impressed by it. And I think everybody collectively just said, I don't understand why in the world you trade Verlander. He's still an elite pitcher. You still want to be good next year. For a couple more years, you have him. As for the Yankees, people definitely angry, although I think they understand there's only so much they could do because, as you pointed out, there wasn't many bats available. Like, all along, it felt like Cody Bellinger would be a great bat for New York. Short ports, left-handed bat, former MVP. But then the Cubs pulled off an eight-game winning streak. And, like, well, we can't trade him now. And I talked to my brother, who's actually a Cubs fan. I go, listen, I don't think you're going to catch the Reds or the Brewers. Nor do I think you make the wild card. But I totally understand. Eight-game winning streak, you can't just turn your back on the fans. They're going to get mad. So you're going to hang around and do what you got to do. But Strowman should have been traded. And so should have Bellinger. But I get it. They're both really good. And, and neither guy's going to be a Cub next year in all likelihood. Strowman's going to opt out. Three-year, $71 million. Dude. He can get between 25 and $30 million a year. And Bellinger, as you and I know, is a Boris guy. So he went from hitting 203 the past three seasons to having a great year at the Cubs. And he's going to get a $100 million contract. So for the Yankees, a big swing and miss as far as getting a bat. And they have to look internally to improve things. And, of course, I feel for my buddy Aaron Boone and Sean Casey, of course, former MLB Network analyst who's now the hitting coach. Like when Case got the job, I spoke to him and I said, dude, do you know what you're getting into? Yeah. And it's one thing with Sean Casey, Ben. He's got a great personality. He's always positive. He's like, no, I think I can go there and at the very least take a little pressure off these guys and just focus <laughs> on their panics. And, and I'm thinking, like, that was a two-weeks-ago conversation I had, and the Yankees have not proved it at all. And, again, Sean Casey is a ray of sunshine in a thunder shower. I can't imagine how frustrating this must be for him. Because as he said to me, and Aaron Boone said to me, he goes, there's just, everyone's too tight. Like, everyone's frustrated. And it, it's gotten worse in the last two weeks. Their offense is so anemic, Ben. I, I was busy with the kids on Sunday. I finally got things wrapped up. Here's your iPads, boys. I locked in for Yankees O Sunday Night Baseball. It's 7 nothing in the first inning. Severino can't even get out of one inning. And with that offense, you know the game's over. Like, they, they, if the other team scores three or four runs, it's game over. That's shocking to say that about the New York Yankees. No, they've been brutal. They've been out. Absolutely uh, brutal. But, yeah, you, you know, they, they should be winning the press conferences with all those former media members uh, in, in positions of power uh, on, on on the field for, for that Yankees team. But, yeah, you mentioned the lack of, of big big bats that moved, uh, the lack of, of, of big moves just in general at the deadline. You mentioned that Cubs team that was – it looked like they were primed to be obvious sellers headed towards the deadline. And, and the Mariners sold off to a degree in, in trading away their closer, but they did hold on to – Teoscar Hernandez, and they appeared to try and do two things at once. Do you think this is like the new reality of, of trade deadlines? I mean, it, it's it's possible it's just like a one-off because last trade deadline was, was pretty significant. We've seen some, even with the expanded postseason uh, format. But yeah, it, it does feel like there's more teams that are just, they're, they, they're not going to let go of the rope entirely if they're like within three to five to six games out of a second or a, a third wildcard spot in either the American League or the National League. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting because for the Mariners, as soon as I heard DePoto's comments, I go, well, if you're one foot in, you're one foot out. It's really tough to kind of get on the same page. You know, it's kind of like 
Barbie when I saw Margot Robbie say, well, it's a movie that for people that love Barbie and for people who hate Barbie. And I go, that's impossible. You can't yeah. do that. You're going to alienate one fan base. And by the way, it's clearly a movie for people who love Barbie, and that's why it's been so successful. If you hate Barbie, I don't recommend seeing this film, which is all about feminists and feminist icons and you know toxic masculinity is a natural evil. So I think in this instance for Seattle, DePoto, who never saw a treat he didn't like. One thing I like with Trey DePoto, he's always eager to mix things up. But I will say, I think it's a weakness at times because you can't ever get any chemistry because you go, man, there goes Jerry again trading guys. But I think you're right in terms of it being the new reality. And I thought San Diego would have been a good example of that. If they had not swept the Rangers, then they would have seen Preller try to do the same thing DePoto was doing. I think he would have dealt Snell and he would have dealt Hader, but he still would have been convinced we're still in this thing. He would have just said, listen, Snell is going to be a free agent anyways. I'm going to lose him for nothing. I'll get something pretty good. And maybe I'm not looking for prospects. I'm looking for impact players right now. Similarly with Hayter, yeah, I, listen, I have other closers. I still want to win this year, but I just know this guy's going to leave anyways. So it, it's, it's become more convoluted than simply we're going for it or we're selling. It's not like that now. It's kind of like, well, we're kind of buying, we're kind of selling. And Seattle was kind of in that mix. And ultimately, I don't think they're a good enough team. But they made the playoffs last year. So I get DePoto saying, well, I'm not going to blow it up. We just made the playoffs. I think we're just having a bad year. That happens. Mariners right now are second in the league in strikeouts. They have more talent they've shown. They've got great young pitching with Logan Gilbert, George Kirby. Obviously, Castillo is their ace. They just haven't hit. They strike out way too much. So I, I know as far as records are concerned, uh, the Orioles and the Rays have better records than those top two teams in the AL West. But you talk about the Rangers, you talk about the Astros. Those were the two teams that did add players of significance. Um, and, and it's a couple of Mets pitchers. They end up uh, with uh, Max Scherzer in Arlington with the Rangers. And then, of course, Justin Verlander goes back to the team that he just came off winning a World Series with and an American League Cy Young Award with. Is it... Like, is the balance of power actually in the AL West, despite the fact that it's the Orioles and, and the Rays with better records? And, yeah, the Blue Jays have a, a pretty pretty good roster that hasn't quite clicked on all cylinders. Is it hard not to look at the defending champs as the best team in the American League right now? No, I'm with you, man. Like, if you said to me right now, ALCS matchup, my heart would just go Rangers-Astros. And maybe that is being a victim of seeing those trades for Scherzer and Verlander. But I say to myself, Texas, best offense in baseball. They got good news on Seager. They were worried how long he's going to be out. It could be back this week. Four-time All-Star, guys hitting 350 in 66 games. Jonah Heim, who's been a terrific catcher for them. Again, wrist injury. Could be done for the year. No, they're actually like, no, he's going to come back in September. I'm like, wow, that's pretty good news. And pitching-wise, Evaldi in the I.L. with stiffness. Hopefully nothing serious. But you do get Scherzer. Again, maybe he's no longer elite, but the guy's still a good pitcher. And you get Jordan Montgomery, who's been St. Louis's best starter. So you mm-hmm. add those two with your Evaldi, who's the best free agent signing of this offseason. You add John Gray, Dane Dunning, Martin Perez, Heaney. I mean, you got seven starters that are battling for five. And again, their offense rakes. Adolis Garcia's going to drive in the most runs in baseball. Seager, Simeon, Heim, Josh Young could have been rookie of the year. So I really feel strongly about Texas, although when I saw the Verlander move, I said, man, I feel bad for Texas. I was like, man, like, I really feel like the Rangers, this is their year. They go, you know, we'll just go get Verlander. Like, all the moves you made, we got the better guy, and we already know how good he is in Houston, and we just got Jordan Alvarez back, so plug and play. And as Jake Peavy said to me, listen, Texas is a really nice story. And if you start going through lineup by lineup, you can go, well, okay, Texas may be a slight edge here, Houston's slight edge there, but Houston's been there. Like, how much will experience matter? We're about to find out down the stretch. And there's going to be that great Labor Day weekend series 
Rangers, Astros, potentially. Who knows? We could get Scherzer versus Verlander, which would be just incredible to watch those two guys head-to-head. Because I did hear from a couple of sources, by the way. They didn't get along all that great in New York. So I'm really curious if you get Max versus JB, how much fun that would be to watch. But, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you. I kind of feel like right now those are the two best teams. And uh, maybe disrespect to the Rays and, and Orioles. Listen, Rays just had a terrible July. So yeah. out of sight, out of mind. All of them are good against the Yankees. And the Orioles... I love him, man. Like, I, my friend was sitting to me there. Who, who's the feel-good story? I said, it's the Orioles. I mean, I love the Orioles. I love that ballpark. It's my, probably my favorite ballpark in baseball. I love Cayman Yards. Uh, I love the crab cakes. I, I think it's great when a, when a baseball city, which Baltimore really is, just has fallen on tough times. But they haven't made the playoffs in seven years. I'd love to see them go back. But I really feel like, Ben, they should have done better than Jack Flaherty. Like, when I look at the starting rotation, they've been better in July. Gibson's their only veteran. And you're throwing in Wells and Bradish and Kramer and now Flaherty. Like, again, the Jays' rotation is significantly better. Maybe that doesn't matter in a two-game series. But it certainly does matter in an ALDS or an ALCS. So I feel like, yeah, Rangers throws are the favorites. Yeah, the, the 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 Orioles might live to regret not going a little further all in. And and before I let you go, I, I hadn't heard the, the Scherzer-Verlander thing, but I think, like, you throw those two in the octagon, Scherzer's like a minus 200 favorite. Like, I, I'm putting everything on Scherzer. <laughs> yeah, I think he's a little bit more ferocious, a little bit more bite. I, I couldn't get any clarity from my source on what it was. He was like, yeah, they just don't really get along that well. And I was like, well, who doesn't, like, I was trying to figure out who doesn't <laughs> like the other guy more. Like, oh, man, they just, they just kind of rub each other the wrong way. I think the sense of it was... In Detroit, I don't think Verlander was as magnanimous towards Scherzer as maybe Max would have liked. So it's oh. kind of one of those things like, oh, we go back, you're like big brother, little brother. Hey, it could have been a little nicer to me. No, I think I'm better than you. I believe that's where the source of the friction lasted. Okay, yeah, it could be fun uh, between those two teams. They played some great games already uh, against each other this season. Adnan, great to chat as always, pal. We'll talk next week. Ben, this was awesome, man. We'll talk soon. See you, buddy. Uh, Adnan Verk, MLB Network, and the Cinephile Podcast. The Astros are the champs and they must be deferred to until we see otherwise. And, you know, Framber Valdez just threw a no hitter yesterday against the guardians team. That's swinging USA today's um, that's all well and good, man. It's, it's amazing. how <laughs> We don't even need to discuss the other American league playoff team. That's coming out of the AL central because that team is going to stink. Abolish it. But yeah, no, I, I, I if I was putting down a couple of ducats, as well as the Orioles have played and as fun a team as they appear to have and as much talent, obviously, that exists on the Blue Jays, and I do believe in the starting depth and the back and the bullpen. It's, I mean, the Astros have pitching on pitching on pitching on pitching, and Jordan Alvarez is back, and they've been there. They've been in those big moments. They're playing with house money. Got to be deferring to the Astros, who just bolstered their rotation again, getting Justin Verlander. All right, when we come back, Blue Jays have turned into Cardinals North as they acquire three former St. Louis Cardinals, which is good. Like, all those players are good, but what does it say that they come from a team that's having a horrible, horrible season? We'll talk to Katie Wu, Cardinals reporter for The Athletic next. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time, Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Annis. Now, it's not an obvious thing that... Uh, 
the Blue Jays have gotten better by adding 326 of their active roster from a team that is currently 47 and 61. But that's what's happened. Three St. Louis Cardinals are now Toronto Blue Jays after the trade deadline. Jordan Hicks, Paul DeYoung, and Yanisis Cabrera, who had his, his first hiccup since joining the Blue Jays bullpen. But the Blue Jays are turning into Cardinals North. Uh, we'll see if it works out for them. Let's talk to Katie Wu, Cardinals uh, reporter for The Athletic. Katie, thanks for doing this. How's it going? I'm great, Ben. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, it, it is weird that this is now uh, a team with some Blue Jays, but a lot of Cardinals. Um, and, and there could have been more, right? Like there was there was discussions about, you know, Blue Jays trying to add a, a right-handed bat. And boy, Tyler O'Neill might have fit uh, nicely into this lineup. But let's start with the, the guy we haven't seen yet, Paul DeYoung, who uh, the Blue Jays just tweeted out a, a video of. He's, he's in the Blue Jays clubhouse today, so I, I imagine... If Bobochet is again missing today's game, he will find himself at shortstop. It's been an interesting career for DeYoung. Started uh, real hot out of the gates, uh, runner-up for Rookie of the Year, and then some hard times in the middle there, and then kind of resurrecting himself this year. Can can you give us some insight into what Paul DeYoung is now in, in 2023? Sure. I think what you're seeing in Paul DeYoung this year was just that resurgence that was pretty much married his all-star season in 2019. Now, of course, a lot went down between 2019 and 2023, but I think the Paul DeYoung the Blue Jays are getting is the typical stability defense at shortstop. And it's a little, he's a little bit of a rarity in terms of he hits for power as a shortstop. You don't usually see that. Um, He's going to strike out a little bit more than you'd probably like to see. That's just the tendency of having power uh, and being the power, the type of power hitter that he is. But I know he was sought after as an emergency rental with Bo Bichette's future at that point unclear. And at the very least, the Blue Jays got some infield depth to really hopefully help them over the next two months heading into October. Can you, can you tell me a little bit more about the defense? Because, yeah, the, the metrics a couple of years ago were real good. Um, and, and depending on which one you look at this year, they're, they're really good. Defensive run save, not necessarily, but like the, the MLB.com uh, StatCast one is, is really, really good. Like, is he, we talk about his defense being just above average or like elite level at shortstop. I think it depends on where he's positioned. The Cardinals, before they uh, NLB incorporated uh, the shift ban, were able to really position their defenders in intelligent ways, resourceful ways, to help them and utilize their assets. Cardinal, uh, Paul Young might not have the most range uh, in the Cardinals' defense at the time, but he's going to make the plays that you expect him to make, and every now and then he'll flash the leather. So, I, again, I go to the word stability when talking about DeYoung. If the ball's hit at him or in his vicinity, he'll make the play. Um, don't expect him to make the super flashy all-out dives that you see on Sports Center top ten. But the ball hit his vicinity, you can almost assure that it's going to be an out. So he played second base just once last year, but in in 2017, that that runner-up rookie of the year season, he, he played 20 games in 158 innings at second base. When Bobuchet comes back, um, he's obviously not the, the Blue Jays shortstop. Do you think he could he could play second base for the Blue Jays in 2023? Oh, absolutely. I think before the Cardinals were hit with a bit of injuries starting 2023, the idea was to use Paul DeYoung as a roving utility guy. Now, Paul DeYoung was one of those guys that was hit with injury, dealing with a minor back issue that kept him out most of April. But, yes, he's played shortstop the majority of his career. He can still play other all around the infield as well, second base, third base. Really, I like this fit for Toronto because you're getting, again, that insurance, um, not only talking about Bichette's future, which thankfully for Toronto fans, sounds like they've avoided anything major there, but you're also getting just kind of that 
stability. Again, that's the word that I used to describe Paul DeYoung, and that I think goes no matter what position he's at on the uh, on the diamond. Yeah, and and his perception has changed a, a lot again since he was uh, runner up for rookie of the year. He does have a twelve and a half million dollar team option with a two million dollar buyout next year. Probably not something that a team is going to pick up if he's not an everyday player. Like, was there there was there any chance that the the Cardinals were going to pick up that option? And and do you expect the the Blue Jays to just buy him out for the two million bucks? I didn't see it likely only because the Cardinals have their top infield prospect and in Mason Wynn knocking at the door. He's hit uh, nearly 400 in July in AAA this year, and it seems like he'd be the shortstop of the future. Cardinals president of baseball operations, John Mazalek, was very clear in stating what his intentions were at the trade deadline. It was to offload players coming, approaching their first-time free agency like Paul DeYoung, like Jordan Hicks, and essentially re-bolster the farm system. So I didn't expect the Cardinals to, one, hold on to Paul, or two, uh, exercise that $12.5 million option for 2024. Seems like, ideally, Paul, while he loves St. Louis, and, I, I mean, I put out a tweet there, he was, service, he was serving the community and volunteering with his mom um, the day before he got traded. I still think he'll be a great fit in Toronto because he knows what it's like to play on a willing, uh, winning ball club, and I'm sure he'll bring those assets along with Cabby and Hicks to Toronto. Yeah, let's talk about Jordan Hicks, who made his Blue Jays debut yesterday, and he impressed with the radar gun. He threw the hardest pitch ever thrown in the StatCast era by a Toronto Blue Jays pitcher. That was good. Uh, the overall results weren't great, but everybody got rocked by, by the Orioles yesterday, and he was a little bit rusty. He hadn't been in action in a while. Um, April for him didn't go so well, and the Blue Jays were part of that. They, 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 they got to him on opening day, in fact, What's changed for him outside of April? Well, that was a very peculiar April for Jordan Hicks, where it just seemed like nothing could go right. He couldn't find the strike zone, really struggled with command. And the change was a little bit of twofold. It started with him meeting with pitching coach Jesse Blake and moving him to the opposite side of the rubber and just setting him up for a little bit more success in terms of that movement that he has as both the sinker and the slider. He needs to be positioned well from the start for that movement to be effective. But the bigger thing, I think, in talking to Jordan at the time was he changed how he pre-gamed uh, and how he prepped for games that he knew he was going to pitch in. He was really intentful, um, really focused on the task at hand in pre-game. You know, said sometimes he could get a little lackadaisical and not really focus until he got into the game, and that meant that he was starting behind. And that's when you would see a lot of those four-pitch walks to open the game. You know, anytime you open an inning with a four-pitch walk, good things don't usually follow. So for Jordan, it was a little bit of that two-fold change, both physical and mental. And ever since then, I know I thought he was one of the top, if not number one, right-handed relievers available at the deadline. Oh, yeah, no question. And and 103, 104, that, that jumps off the page. But it is, again... Yeah, that'll play. Yeah. But it, it's funny to see, like, some of the swing and miss stuff. It's it's not necessarily the, the high heat that, that gets swung through, right? Like, it's the it's the sweeper stuff when when batters are looking for 104 and they, they get the sweeper where he gets the swing and miss, right? Sure. I, I think it's all about sequencing and using that movement. Uh, Jordan can obviously get a bunch of swing and miss. When you throw 104, that kind of comes naturally. But it's his location of the sinker, and it's how he pairs that with the slider. He's really a two-pitch guy, but that movement and that sequencing, and of course the change in speeds when you go from 103 to 88, back-to-back, I don't really know how anyone's supposed to really keep up with that. So I thought Jordan Hicks would be a great compliment with Jordan Romano. When, when he gets healthy in that bullpen, you add Cabby from the left side, he can be really nasty. I know he had a great start mm. to his career in Toronto with the exception of yesterday, 
Um, but I think those three guys can be absolute game changers for the Blue Jays going forward. Yeah, the Blue Jays didn't have to pay nearly the, the same price for uh, Yenesis Cabrera because he was DFA'd by, by the Cardinals. What, what happened there? Because, boy, I mean, yesterday accepted. He, he had gotten off to such a tremendous start out of the Blue Jays' bullpen. Why did it go so wrong with St. Louis? I wouldn't say it went wrong. I would just say both parties wanted different things. Cabby was upset with his usage. Keep in mind, Cabby had been with the Cardinals since 2019, and they'd only had winning seasons since then. And he wasn't being used in high-leverage situations, one, because there weren't really high-leverage situations available, given how the Cardinals were playing. And two, because the Cardinals were pivoting and trying to find some of their younger talent, give them a chance. You know how it is in years and selling years. Your priority focuses from winning now to winning in the future. And Cabby didn't see that as a the best way forward for him. So he let the Cardinals know. The Cardinals agreed it was probably best for both parties to move on. They were able to do so. And looks like he's found a, a new home with some of the same friends. Um, so I mentioned Tyler O'Neill, Canadian uh, kid uh, who's you know been a, an MVP candidate in years prior. He's also suffered numerous injuries. He's also been like pretty publicly benched earlier this season for, for the Cardinals. He hit a home run yesterday. He's also not a rental. He's, he's under contract uh, for next season. Do you think the Cardinals took calls on Tyler O'Neill? You know, it's, it was explained to me with about a week left in the deadline that Tyler O'Neill was going to stay in St. Louis unless someone was really tempted to overbuy. And when you have a player like Tyler O'Neill, who's such a high caliber player and so exciting to watch when he is healthy, that's the key word. He really hadn't been healthy all year. So his perceived value on the market was probably at a low. Now, when you're looking at what Tyler O'Neill can do for a winning ball club, you certainly are intrigued, especially if you are Toronto and you've had this extensive trade history with St. Louis, um, especially recently. But it didn't seem like the Cardinals were too inclined to move Tyler O'Neill at this deadline. Keep in mind, St. Louis is not expecting or was not expecting to fix all of their problems at this trade deadline. They have a lot of work to do in terms of addressing the rotation for 2024. They, I think they believed it was better to hold on to Tyler See what he can do over the next few months, and that would either boost his value or maybe he earns a spot next year on the roster for 2024 because the Cardinals, again, have lots of decisions to make next year. Yeah, he's only played 100 games in a season once, and that was the season he finished eighth in MVP voting in, in 2021. And I mentioned, like, the, the little tete-a-tete he was having with his team earlier in the season. Like, what is, what is his standings with, with, like, what is his standing with the Cardinals as an organization and, and amongst Cardinal fans as well? Because this, this is one of the... The, the rising stars in baseball just a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think, you know, the injury history is, again, going to be the biggest thing. And I, I think in the beginning of the year when he had that public spat with the manager, it was just about both sides trying to figure out communication on what can be expected from Tyler as he tries to stay healthy and play, you know, 140 games a season or also resting and not hurting himself because unfortunately that injury history has become part of his narrative. So I think there was a mix up in communication. That communication has definitely been cleared up. Uh, Tyler O'Neill again, when you looked at what the Cardinals were doing in the, in their outfield to start the year, it wasn't the most clean of defense. He certainly helped uh, clean that up when he's healthy and it's been a nice return so far from him off the injured list. Uh, so Jack Flaherty, another player that the, the Cardinals sent out of the deadline. Man, we're just not used to seeing this from a St. Louis Cardinals team that's been so consistently good year over year over year and, and just bizarrely uh, inept uh, this season. But yeah, Jack Flaherty, uh, a pending free agent, he ends up with the team the Blue Jays are playing right now, uh, the Baltimore Orioles. Not exactly back to, uh, again, his peak form where he was getting Cy Young Award votes. 
ERA in the mid fours uh, right now. What, what has Jack Flaherty been this season for the Cardinals? Um, you know, I think the writing was on the wall for Jack Flaherty in terms of how the season was going because, like we talked about, the Cardinals were looking to offload players in their walk here, and that was Flaherty. Um, he certainly had a memorable time in St. Louis, but injuries in 2021 and 2022 really plagued all of that spark and promise that he showed in 2019. And he was able to get somewhat back in form this year, but not fully. He'll certainly help complement the Orioles and what's expected to be a very exciting AL East. But just given the trend of the Cardinals and what they were looking at to do, looking to do at the deadline, it was not a surprise that Flaherty was traded. Um, but I think when you're looking at that Orioles pitching staff, he'll certainly be more of one of the older guys, the veteran guys that can help set the tone. He has the makeup to be a playoff caliber player. We've seen it before, hopefully for Orioles fans they get to see that but for blue jays fans i bet they'd like to see the exact opposite uh correct you are correct in that uh, assessment katie i mentioned that ha- this cardinals team has been so so consistent over the last boy it's more than a decade 2007 was the the last time they had a losing season and not every season is, is that you know you going to the world series there's a world series championship in there um but yeah, this this must this is obviously new territory for you as a, a reporter covering this team. I mean, how bizarre is this for for Cardinals fans to be going through this experience where, like, basically from the word go, that this team was never in it this year? I think it's new territory for everybody. I mean, you mentioned that this is the first time they've had this this losing record since 2007. It's also the first time in John Mozeliak's tenure as president of baseball operations that's 15 years that the Cardinals have have sold at the deadline. They have almost always exclusively upgraded their team on the at the deadline and looked to contend in the second half. No one here is really familiar on how this concept works in terms of selling in St. Louis. It's usually an unfathomable concept, but this is where the Cardinals are. It was a, a perfect storm of badness, as Adam Wainwright likes to say, in terms of what <laughs> happened in the first half. Um, but the good news for Cardinals fans is they were able to keep their core. They did not initiate a full, rebu- uh, full rebuild or full teardown. And the plan for next year is that the Cardinals will continue to contend again um, and when you look at where the NL Central is as a division, you can certainly say their own Cardinals are only a couple of moves from making that a reality. Yeah, it's it's weird for a team with Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado to to not be contending. Uh, there were some reports that like, yeah, they they at least listened a little bit on those guys. Do you think it was ever on the table? I guess specifically Arenado. Do, do you think it was ever on the table them them trading one of their big guns? I don't think it was ever legitimately on the table. I think Mo has to do his due diligence, and if any team calls with interest, he has to hear them out. Those were the conversations that I was aware of. I don't think anything progressed past the initial check-in. Mo made it pretty clear he was not looking to trade either Nolan or Paul Goldschmidt, and when you're trying to avoid a full rebuild, that's what you should do. Uh, Katie, appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. You got it, Ben. Thanks for having me. There's Katie Wu, Cardinals reporter, for the athletic, as the Cardinals are good year in, year out because they have a good farm system, because they identify players, whether it's in the first round or deeper in the draft, that are good, and they develop them correctly within their system. They reach the major leagues, and they're, if not elite, like they're contributors at the major league level. And when you do that, you're never bad. And again, they're not winning the World Series every year, although they did that pretty memorable fashion as well. David Fries, World Series MVP. Um, but you got a chance. You're in the postseason, and you got to punch your chance year over year over year. It's just really weird to see a team, especially in Katie rightly mentioned the division, the central divisions in, in both leagues, not exactly the powerhouse divisions, but to see that team so out of it so early with such a dearth of, of pitching, 
that that was their undoing. Despite the fact that they took two out of three from the Blue Jays in that opening series of the season after a Blue Jays incredible comeback in game one of 162 this season. Boy, Tyler O'Neill would have been a nice to have. And I know there's there's a whole myriad of, of injury issues with him. And this year he's only played 40 games. And last year he only played 96. Hey, 2021 he played 138. That's his career high. Outside of that, the career high was last year, 96. He just He's not found a way to stay healthy. But might have made him kind of a, a perfect platoon partner for Dalton Varsho maybe in left field. The defense is elite. Canadian guy, I'm sure the Blue Jays put their best foot forward on Tyler O'Neill. Um, I guess Katie says that like the fences were mended between he and the court Cardinals organization, but there was a pretty public falling out between those two earlier on this year. That would have been a type of addition that we're having a different conversation about the Blue Jays deadline. As it is, we're talking about it being okay and Paul DeYoung's and nice little lad and Katie, although Katie wasn't like, overly glowing about his defense, said, yeah, when you could take advantage of the shift, he was much better and he'll make the plays that he's supposed to make, but not exactly diving all over the place in the range, not super elite. But we'll see. I haven't seen a lineup yet today for the Blue Jays and uh, Orioles game three of four down at Rogers Center. I would expect to see him in the lineup if he is, in fact, in the building and activated for today. You know what this is giving me vibes of? And this is bad. This is really bad. So three Cardinals are now Toronto Blue Jays. 26-man roster. So three 26th of the Blue Jays are former members of the 2023 St. Louis Cardinals, who I mentioned, not very good. Dead last in the National League Central, where the upstart, Ellie De La Cruz's, the Cincinnati Reds, are in first place, but only nine games over 500. Like the Pirates are ahead of them. The Cubs, like they won eight straight and all of a sudden the Cubs in this phase of their development are still alive in the division race. They're only four back. Cardinals are way worse than the Cubs. And they're worse than the Pirates. They're 47 and 61. And the Blue Jays are like, yeah, that's the team we got to make most of our roster out of. I know that's, that's not, that's too simplistic. And that's, that's silly to put it those way, that way, because individual players, like you can, Paul DeYoung's a good player. and He's not going to be an everyday player for the Blue Jays. And Yenesis Cabrera, you got him. He's a flyer. And Jordan Hicks throws 103. It does a little bit harken back to 2013 when the Blue Jays were like, we're World Series favorites now because we got all the Marlins. And for those who forget, the 2012 Miami Marlins lost 93 games. But no, we're good. We got Jose Reyes, Mark Burley, Josh Johnson, Emilio Bonifacio, and John Buck. <laughs> and that was, that's more than 326. That is five players. But yeah, it does feel like eerily similar to 2013 in that regard. Hey, the, the best reason the Blue Jays are going to go on, run, uh, on a run in the second half is because they got a bunch of Cardinals. In 2023, like the one losing season they've had in 2007. I mean, the best reason to feel optimistic about this Blue Jays team is that they'll figure it out with runners in scoring position. And again, they'll figure it out, not just with runners in scoring position, but with runners on third with fewer than two outs. I feel like this needs repeating because I mentioned it like in passing with Caleb Joseph earlier. It's the season. The Blue Jays inability 
to come up with not big hits, but professional at-bats with a runner on third base and fewer than two outs has been the season. They've had almost the exact number of opportunities in those situations as the Orioles. Orioles 215, Blue Jays 213. But the Orioles have come through 120 times, the Blue Jays 99. That's 21 runs, at least, right? Like, some of those are, hey, runners on second and third, no out, or second and third, one out, or bases loaded, like, and you come through with a double, which is kind of different than what I'm talking about. Still counts. Blue Jays haven't done that either. But you don't have to be prime Vladimir Guerrero Jr. or Bo Bichette or George Springer to drive in a runner from third base with fewer than two outs. You need to be a serious baseball player, which, man, for so much of the season, this team has not looked like. They have many of. Just how many times that happened again yesterday when the, the game was still in the balance, which it was. It was like 3-3 three, three in, the, in the sixth inning. The, the Blue Jays lead off double. Brandon Bell, great job getting a second base. Lead off the, uh, the inning. Stranded. Inability to move him to third base, and then even if you had, you went strikeout, strikeout. And this team is not a high strikeout team. They're, they're among the best teams in baseball at not striking out, shockingly. But when they need to not strike out, they strike out. It's really bizarre. And it's really frustrating. And that's why you can talk about a team that's 10 games over 500 and still in a playoff spot and still you know has theoretical chances of of catching the Orioles atop the division and talk about it being frustrating and disappointing because of exactly what I just said. They've had opportunities, whether it's coming up with a big hit with runners in scoring position or not even requiring a hit, and they can't get it done. You want to talk about frustrating? How about this era of Canada basketball? So much promise. It's the golden generation I know you're well aware of except it hasn't resulted in much of anything. Perhaps that changes at the end of this month as Canada heads overseas to the FIBA Basketball World Cup. Um, They're training in Toronto right now. And Michael Grange has a story out on sportsnet.ca about uh, some of the big names that are going to be taking part for Team Canada in Indonesia coming up. He will join me next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Hey, Michael Grange is the dog guy. We, we're... we're all familiar with his dog. He's a, he's a regular uh, uh, appearer on Michael Grange's Twitter feed. Axel, you're a good-looking dog, Michael. Thanks for doing this, by the way. I am, uh, as I like to say, I'm part, uh, part-time sports journalist, full-time photographer. photographer. <laughs> oh, I didn't know. Photographer that... yeah. of my super dog model. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful-looking dog. Um, I don't know why we started that way, but it, yeah, I don't know. Okay, uh, you have a good dog. The song was about cats. I'm like, why would you have a song about cats? I don't know. I was asking the guys on the other side of the glass if there was a reason for that, and they said no. So then I was like, okay, I'll ask Michael about his dog. All right. Uh, let's, let's move on. Uh, FIBA Basketball World Cup cranking up at the end of this month. 
Canada opens up its tournament on the 25th of August against France. That's going to be their their toughest game of of the group stage. Had their first workout in Toronto yesterday, which you wrote about on Sportsnet.ca. That would, I would implore everybody to read. Um, yeah, it seemed like everybody was there, including Jamal Murray, who wasn't a full participant. But that that is that is that a big deal? It's a big deal that everyone's there. I think it's a big deal that Jamal is there. Although, in fairness to him, he's kind of he's kind of indicated he would every chance he's had, you know, since his championship season ended. But look, it doesn't feel like June was just last weekend or something. So, you know, he's back playing serious basketball, getting ready to play serious basketball only, you know, uh, eight weeks maybe since, uh, since he won a title. So, um, you know, I think it speaks to his commitment to the whole process and it certainly changes the trajectory uh, for this team having him there, for sure. I, I'm so, like, I I, I want to be optimistic. I've just been so optimistic in, in years previous, Michael. Tell me tell me why I should be optimistic again. <laughs> well, I mean, this is the best team they've had. And they've had, you know, they've had other years where they've had a good representation of NBA players. They've had a lot of good NBA players on the team, including uh, in Victoria in 2019, including in Mexico City in 2015. And even going back uh, before that in 2011 when Corey Joseph was just a puck. But, um, you know, I think for me the real difference is that in Shea Gilgis-Alexander and Jamal Murray, you have, you know, we consider and have a serious debate about Canada having the best backcourt in the world at the World Cup. Mm. You could have a serious debate about uh, Shea and even Jamal being the best player in the World Cup. And, you know, I'm sure, <laughs> you know, the uh, Luka Doncic might have something to say about that. He honestly sent it to and go on down the list. But, um, you know, these, you know, the last time Canada made noise at a world-class event was in Sydney in 2000 when they finished seventh over five and two, just missed out on, on the medal round. And they had the best player in the tournament. They had Steve Nash. Um, outside of the U.S. And so now they have two players who are playing at that level and surrounded by, you know, some really good, polished NBA players, many of whom have significant FIBA experience. Yeah, and, and Rowan Barrett was on that that Olympic team with Steve Nash. He's now in charge of the Canadian senior men's team. How much, how much credit, and again, they haven't done anything, they haven't even played a game, but yeah, getting everybody to show up is in itself uh, an accomplishment to some degree. How much credit does he get for that? He absolutely deserves credit. And, um, you know, he certainly has taken heat over the years when, when players haven't been there or been available. You go back to the World Cup in 2019, and they just kind of kept dropping off one after the other. And, um, you know, he had to wear that. And the reality is it's not fair. Uh, because nobody's telling NBA players what to do, and especially you're not telling them what to do when you're not paying them. And so you really are in a situation where you're trying to appeal to them, you're trying to create a program that is their teams feel comfortable in them participating, you're trying to create um, you know, a professional environment where they're treated you know, as they're roughly accustomed to, where the medical care is good, where the coaching is good, the travel is good, uh, the schedule is is good, and all that takes a ton of work, and you got to do all that work, and then, you know, hope that that uh, it, it's it strikes a chord with um, the players you need to have 
on your on your team. And and I think Rowan Barrett and uh, Michael Bartlett, who's the CEO of Canada Basel, has kind of done a great job in terms of creating the budget to allow some of this stuff to happen. Uh, they deserve a ton of credit because there's certainly been enough times when you know they've had to answer tough questions and. Uh, you know they've 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 got it done, and even you know with Nick Nurse leaving kind of unexpectedly last minute, and then you pivot and you get a guy like Jordi Jordi Fernandez, who certainly has the, the credibility with existing players and around the NBA. Um, you know that's 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 all I think stuff that uh, Canada basketball can be proud of. Yeah, no, he's a he's a name if people aren't familiar, but like the the players obviously know who he is um, from his time as an assistant in the in the NBA. Do you have any idea like what kind of like tactically, how different this team will look with him at the helm as opposed to Nick Nurse? You know, I I don't know if there's going to be any major changes. You know, I think uh, the personnel dictates a certain style of play. Um, you know, I would suspect if there are differences, it's probably going to be in their approach defensively. Um, you know, how much pressure they want to bring, how they're going to cover certain pick-and-roll situations. Um, that's, I think, where... You know, a head coach in with this amount of time frame to work with, to only have this team for you know 25 days before they play France. Um, that's where you're probably going to maybe make your mark offensively. Uh, look, it's not going to be that complicated. It's it's going to be keep the ball in Shea's hands, keep the ball in Jamal's hands, um, try to create situations where they can uh, work alongside. And you know, a guy like Kelly Olynyk, who's just a wonderful distributor, is a big and. Um, you know, and, and let them create and otherwise have the group play unselfishly. And, you know, I don't think it's going to be, you know, I don't think it's really, to be honest, rocket science, <laughs> you know, at the offensive end. It's, you have good players who are good at specific things. So, so let them, you know, dictate. I think defensively is where, you know, we'll see if we see, you know, the kind of high-tempo, disruptive defensive approach that, you know, Nick Nurse really favored. Maybe, maybe that's something Jordy kind of shies away from and tries to be a little more conservative with. Well, where is the, the weakness with this group? I mean, we talk about the, the best backcourt in, in maybe the, the World Cup. Yeah, like they, they, they have seemingly plenty of depth at the, at the guard position. Is it is it up front? Is it, you know, and and I get it. Kelly Olenek's been a great soldier for this team. Is it, yeah, the lack of, of a, a true game-changing big man? I think it's um, there's a couple of areas that, you know, they're going to have to figure out how to manage or where maybe other teams might try to exploit. And... You know, they're not a big team. Dwight, Dwight Powell's a, you know, a really good uh, NBA role-playing big, and he's a, you know, a good FIBA soldier, you know, but he's not a big, big man by the standards of FIBA, especially you know, in, in the international game. You, know, you can get away with having Rudy Gobert kind of stand in the paint defensively and, and just loom over everything. So they don't really have that option. Um, and then I think... At the wings, as good as they are, and you can kind of go through the list, there's a lot of good players, uh, you know, are playing important roles on the team. They're not kind of overflowing with really good shooters. And, um, you know, and I think when you have a guy like Shea who can get in the paint almost at will, who can break down defenses, you really want to make um, other teams pay for selling out to guard him. And um, the way you do that is, is having guys who can spot up and and, uh, and make threes. And, you know, like if you just go through the roster, there just isn't a ton of guys who are, you know, I'd say there's a lot of competent three-point shooters, 
there's guys who I think, especially with the FIBA line being just that little bit closer, another kind of foot and nine inches, who are probably going to shoot the ball a little better from that distance. But, you know, they don't have that, uh, you know, that, those one or two guys who just, you just bury it and, and defenses panic about trying to, trying to get to. Andrew Wiggins isn't with this team right now, right? Yeah, and he, you know, and he telegraphed that. Like, I mean, he had, you know, he said um, back when they kind of made this summer core, he said, look, I don't want to commit to three full summers. And it was last summer, this summer, and ideally next summer at the Olympics. And that's fine. You know, like Andrew's got his reasons for that. And and I think what's important really is is him saying, rather than than him kind of keeping everyone guessing, he just said, look, you know, I'm, I'm – it's not something I'm. I, I, it's going to be front and center for me last year, this year, and you know the question will be what happens if they do get the Olympics. Hmm. Uh, that's going to, yeah, you know, we'll see what happens there. Yeah, and and yeah, I, I as you said, not a surprise that he's not there. Also went through his own personal stuff this year. Uh, did play in the postseason for for the Warriors. Um, did I read that right? That Rowan Barrett did kind of like open the door though to to more Canadian basketball players joining this program if if they decide to at the last moment here. No, I think the way to interpret that was, um, you know, there's 14 guys who kind of gave their commitment and have been available to the team the last two summers, or last summer and this summer. And over, even since that was um, kind of put in paper, you know, you've had the emergence of Andrew Nimhart, Ben Matherin, uh, Leonard Miller, um, you know, there's names I'm forgetting, right? Like there's this whole new wave of, of, of young players who could be useful to the program conceivably or could at least want to be part of the program. And I think what they've decided to do is, is no, we're not going to bump guys who are kind of have made a pre-existing commitment. Uh, but, you know, while we're here in Toronto, uh, Shaden Sharp is another name. Um, while we're here in Toronto, if you want to come to the gym for a workout, you're more than welcome. If you want to come watch us practice and kind of get a feel for what we're doing, you're more than welcome. If you want to participate in any part of the program, you're a Canadian basketball player, you're welcome. And I think that's that's how um, they're managing that. And I think it's also worth pointing out that, you know, Canada Basketball's done a really good job of being a resource for these guys in Toronto over the years. You know, there's they make gyms available to them. They make uh, physiotherapists and trainers available to them. They make workout coaches available to them. And that's kind of, as I was saying off the top, you know, when you can't put money in people's pockets, that's how you kind of generate loyalty over time and those kinds of things. And this would be another example of that. Uh, forgive me if you don't have an answer to this, but like, I'm just coming off the heels of a, a very disappointing women's world cup here. And like every news story we get out of Canada soccer is so negative. And you know, there was the talk of bankruptcy not too long ago. Uh, they can't figure it out. Like Canada soccer is a mess top to bottom. Um, but yeah, you, you, you don't hear about that with, with Canada basketball and I'm sure there's prize money to be divvied out. Now, I, I, I think, you know, I think uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Jamal Murray, they're going to be all right financially, probably not too worried about whatever minuscule prize money is being doled out at the FIBA World Cup. But like, how have they been able to, 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 to manage that so much better than some of the other sporting bodies in this country? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And um, I think a uh, couple of, you know, I give credit to Mike Bartley here. Um, he's been on the job now, I think, three years. Very, very dynamic guy. And, you know, has always kind of understood, like, in his bones that you can't win without money because you've got to fly teams, you've got to 
high teams. You got to feed them. You got to, you know, everything you want to do. And and the only way to make money, or not the only way, but a big way to make money, is to have a team that does win. That drives your sponsorship. That drives your uh, your media rights, whatever your merchandising, whatever it might be. So um, there's been a lot of investment spending going on, and I think one way that Canada basketball has done it is they've, you know, they've got a, you know, a decent and I would say growing pool of private uh, sector investors. Uh, I, I, maybe investors not the right word. Maybe uh, uh, supporters, boosters, and boosters who have kind of um, you know come on board and 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 kind of helped uh, you know help kind of make ends meet at times. And one of those, by the way, is, is MLSC. They're uh, you know Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment is one of the biggest funders for Canada basketball, especially on the the women's side, which in turn. Um, women's and, and junior side, but uh, which in turn frees up uh, more money for, for the men when it's needed. So um, that's the answer is, is, you know, the sponsorships have gone up. I think they've added some key sponsors. Their business overall is improving. Um, but, you know, nobody's getting rich in, uh, in kind of non-professional sports. Hmm. And so I think what's, uh, you know, there's probably there's a short list of, of names of guys who've kind of dug in their jeans and uh, guys, people, and uh, and help kind of bridge the gap. And I think the hope is that that's why there's so much riding on, you know, there's a you know, qualifying for the Olympics in Tokyo with a giant, you know, it's a giant need. Getting to Paris is a giant need because, you know, when you can prove that you've got your big name guys playing, when you're competitive and you just have to close your eyes and imagine them playing U.S. at the World Cup for a gold medal or playing uh, France in Paris for a gold medal um, or going on one of those runs. And we've seen it happen in other sports the way it kind of drives interest. Well, if you know you're going to the Olympics next year, all of a sudden you can go door-to-door corporate Canada and say, listen, do you want to be part of this or not? And that drives the bottom line. So, um, you know, they've done a good job kind of creating a program that's uh, viable for now. And uh, but they they're going to need to win to drive the additional revenue they need to take to run a good program. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of pressure. Um, and I'm sure Rowan Barrett is feeling a lot of that pressure. And again, we talked about like man, the moments where it felt like this this team was going to break through, the golden generation was going to you know play some you know home games in Victoria to, to qualify for the previous Olympics, and it, it went also wrong. And didn't they like fly in the floor from uh, the Warriors court that the Raptors yeah. <laughs> won? The... A lot of people have done a lot of heavy lifting and yeah. a lot. And there's an alternate universe, right, where this team qualified to the Olympics in, in London and then again in, in Tokyo, and this would be their third Olympics. And you have a whole bunch of these guys having two games already, two Olympics already on their resume. And, you know, uh, but it hasn't quite happened. And so it's just they just are dying for that breakthrough moment. You know, this summer, frankly, kind of needs to be it. Yes, it does. <laughs> Again, I, I feel like I had like a similar conversation headed into those games in Victoria, but no, nah, no, nah, this is really, really it. And again, there's, it feels like there's so much pressure surrounding the program, and I, I'm sure Rowan Barrett feels that the most. I wonder how much that trickles down to the players. Some of those players were in uh, Victoria, but like the guys that are going to make this thing go weren't, right? Shea Gillages, Alexander, and Jamal Murray. And I, 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 yeah, no offense to like the FIBA World Cup, but I imagine playing in. Um, an NBA Finals probably more pressure than even getting your country to the Olympics. So, like, I'm I wouldn't be worried about Jamal Murray if he was feeling that pressure, anyways. 
But do you think it does filter down to the players, the, the, the like weight of recent history with this program and, and everybody wanting it to do so well and to, to like show some modicum of, of, of you know, some of the, the, the flowers starting to bloom here and we just had so little. Do you think any of that gets, gets down to the players? And I'm not talking about the guys that have been there, like the Corey Josephs um, and, and the, like, like the, 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 the Jamal Murrays and the Shea Gilgis-Alexanders of the world. You know, I don't think so. I mean, I think these guys are so good, are so accomplished, are so advanced in their own careers that, you know, and they're young. <laughs> you know, they're just 25, 26 years old in, in, in Jamal and Shay's case. And there's a whole bunch of guys who are really good. You know, R.J. Barrett's 24 and, you know, Lou Dort's they're 25. We kind of go on down the list and there's guys who aren't on this team that we're referring to that are younger still. Um, so, no, I don't think those guys look at this as, you know, Glory's last shot or anything like that. I think for Corey Joseph, Kelly Olenek, Roy Powell, Mel Legium, yeah, I mean, this has been a decade-plus quest. And I'm sure, that, you know, uh, you know, how long does a career last, right? Like, not forever. So, uh, you know, there's probably different feelings from different corners of that locker room. But I think, you know, I think on the business side of it, as I touched on, look, it's the thing's not going to house of cards, right? It's not going to collapse if they don't somehow qualify for Paris or do something exciting at the World Cup. But, um, you know, it, it, it's just, you know, you, I think, just think when you're trying to capture the imagination of the public and of the business uh, sector, you know, you need stories you can tell. And sometimes they, at some point, they got to be happy stories, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? That's, that's where we're at. Yeah, uh, beating France would go a long way in that regard because that's the the only credible team to to my accounting in in their uh, in their group, and they open up the tournament uh, on. Don't don't sleep on Latvia. Okay, on... Davis yeah. Bertans, like who who's probably got Bertans. They got uh, who's the big dude who just signed with Boston? Sorry, I'm blanking. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah, I had a list of it. Uh, First half for Zinga. Yeah, of course. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So so I'm not so, sleeping on them. Can I sleep on Lebanon? Um, if Canada doesn't beat Lebanon, we got big, big issues. But, but you know, like a, you know, again, I'm not going to play Doomsday. But look, they're 40 minute games. It's a short line, and crazy things happen in international basketball. So they've got to go and play uh, France in the open game. They got to win. They got to. They basically got to be top three out of the four teams in their group. But you want to be one or two, and um, you know, and and they they've got to. They're playing one of the absolute best teams in the world right out of the gate. And, uh, you know, they're not going to have Wembenyama, but they are going to have, um, I think, Gobert's there, and they've got a good core of NBA guys plus EuroLeague guys. That is going to be a very tough test right out of the gate. And, um, you know, that game against Latvia could be absolutely critical. And, and you know, they've got a good team, too. Yeah, no, there's the, the real names on, on that France team for sure. Nando DiColo on that team, Frankie uh, Nilakina, and, uh, yeah, Nicholas Batum on that team as well. Um, all right, before I let you go, so, like, what's immediately next for, for this Team Canada in Toronto? Like, they're playing some warm-up games next, right? Yeah, they're here uh, for the balance of this week, and then they, uh, they leave on Sunday for Germany, and they play, uh, I think they've got five exhibition games, three in Germany, then they go to Spain for a couple, and then they're off to uh, they're off to uh, Jakarta, and yep. it's it's a big commitment of time and a lot of travel, and um, you know it's uh, it's go time. Yeah, can't wait to watch him, uh, Michael. Great job covering this team as always, and uh, thanks for doing this. All right, Ben, you'd be good. Yeah, you too.
Michael Grange, a dog, a dogtographer of Axel. Uh, Team Canada's got to do something here. <laughs> but again, this was, the, this was the conversation we were having in 2019. They had, you know, home games on home soil. Andrew Wiggins was there looking pretty damn good, and they couldn't get it done then. But now you got an NBA champion in Jamal Murray. So is Andrew Wiggins. It wasn't then, though. Uh, you got Andrew Wiggins on the sidelines. You got Jamal Murray at the forefront, along with a guy who's getting MVP votes on a non-playoff team in Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Hard to do better than that one-two punch. Got to qualify for an Olympics. And there's a ton of pressure on the organization as a whole, if not on the individual players. Because, you know, as much as Jamal Murray and Shea Gilgis-Alexander want to get this team to the Olympics, if that doesn't happen, what they do is they just like a month and a half later go to their NBA teams (laughs) and get paid many millions of dollars. So looking forward to that at the end of the month. Uh, We have a couple of Blue Jays notes to pass your way before we hand it over to Blair and Barker. Roster moves for you, in fact, as the one day not enough for Bo Bichette to feel comfortable getting into a game in the next week and a half. He has been placed on the 10-day injured list, retroactive to yesterday. As a result, Paul DeYoung has reported to the team, as I mentioned, he was in the Blue Jays' clubhouse. He is active for tonight's game and in the lineup. Thomas Hatch recalled from AAA Buffalo because Nate Pearson has been optioned to AAA Buffalo. He looked brutal yesterday, and I don't think you're, like, talking about Nate Pearson being not a factor for this team out of the bullpen the rest of the way or into the postseason or anything, but I think that's the state of Nate Pearson right now is that he throws upper 90s, He can get people out, but he's a reliever, and sometimes he can't. And he's got options, which means that sometimes he's in AAA, and sometimes he's in the major leagues, and you're under no obligation to keep him in the major leagues. In fact, you feel probably, in limited sample, what you've seen, you probably feel more comfortable with Jay Jackson in the bullpen whenever he uh, returns to the team. But here's how the lineup looks. Uh, Whit Merrifield back at the top of the lineup. Brandon Belt playing first base. Vlad is the DH. George Springer in the lineup again. Hitting cleanup. Playing right field. Matt Chapman at third base. Danny Jansen doing the catching. By the way, I meant to mention this. As much as you talk about the Dalton Varsho trade being not so great and giving up Gabriel Moreno and Lourdes Gurriel Jr., who could have helped you to various degrees, but it was pretty clear that like every Blue Jays fan wanted Danny Jansen to be the, the one of the three catchers sent out the door. In trade, turns out he was the best of the three so far. Maybe not defensively, and maybe it's not just like you can put your finger on the RBIs and the and the slug being the be-all, end-all, but for my money, he's the best. Uh, Dalton Varsho is in left field. Paul DeYoung hitting eighth at shortstop. Kevin Kiermeyer in center field, batting ninth with Yusei Kikuchi on the mound against Grayson Rodriguez, one of those great prospects for the Baltimore Orioles who's kind of had like an up-and-down rookie season for the O's. See how he does today after Baltimore took the first two games of this series. Already take the season series against the Blue Jays with only five more games to go head-to-head between these two. All right, Blair and Barker's next, getting you set for game three of four, Blue Jays and Orioles. Day off for us tomorrow with the day game at 3 o'clock. We'll be back on Friday. It's been the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis.